In this session, we are continuing our discussion on the doctrine of man. We have looked at the Islamic view of man, his creation, his sinfulness, and his need for salvation. And in this hour, we want to think through a Christian response to the Islamic position. Many years ago, I was witnessing to a Muslim relative of mine, and I started telling her about, we are sinful people, and we need God's grace and forgiveness. And she told me, I am not a sinner. I haven't killed anyone. I haven't stolen anything. I haven't committed adultery. So why do you call me a sinner? And she was actually very offended that I called her a sinner. Now, when we are talking about sin and salvation, we are in a very theological area of discussion. You can't talk about documents and archaeology when you're talking about sin and salvation. You can't prove a Christian position through some kind of a formula or evidence. The Spirit of God has to convict our hearts of our sinfulness. But there are things that I want to share with you that I think will be of great value for you. As I said, we live in a world where not just Muslims, but many others criticize the Christian view of original sin. What, how, how does it make sense to think that one person's problem is transferred to my, uh, to my account? It makes sense. The Islamic position makes common sense that everybody is responsible for their own life, their own good deeds, and their own sinful actions. Now, let me first define a term here, which we haven't done so far. What is original sin? What does Christian theology mean when it says original sin? Original sin does not mean that Adam disobeyed God in the garden. Original sin is not about the first sin of Adam. Original sin in Christian theology means the consequence of Adam's sin. Because of Adam's sin, we are all fallen. I tell Muslims that if we needed teaching and guidance... If that, our prob, if our, I tell Muslims, if our problem was forgetfulness and we needed just teaching and guidance, the teachings of Socrates would have been good enough for all of us. We, our problem is more than just a need for more teachers. The Christian faith says sin is like cancer and we need surgery. We don't need a Band-Aid on a wound. We need the surgery to take the cancer out of our body. Man is made in the image of God, but man is fallen, and that image has been marred, has been broken. What can we say to Muslims about sin and original sin? I think it was Malcolm Muggeridge, a British journalist and a thinker, who made this comment. Like C.S. Lewis, he also came to faith in Christ when he was older. I think it was him who made this comment. Listen, it's a, it's a very insightful comment. He said, the doctrine of original sin is the one Christian doctrine with the most empirical verification in its favor. What does he mean by that? Read your newspapers every day. Watch the news on TV every day. The doctrine of original sin is the one Christian doctrine with the most empirical verification in its favor. We see sin in us and around us every day. We see the effect of brokenness and human rebellion against God every day. If we are honest with ourselves and with the world around us, we see the effect of 
human sin all around us. Jonathan Edwards, a very famous American theologian, made this observation as well. He said, if people are born innocent, why then do we see that 100% of the people, when they grow up, are sinful? Let me, let me clarify what I'm trying to say here. If, as Islam claims, we are born innocent, you would think statistically, out of all the innocent people that are born every day, with no sin, with no sin problem inside them, some of them should grow up and be sinless, be perfect. Muslims say, well, it's the society that makes people sinful. Well, who makes up the society? The people. And so it seems that, but, but we all agree that when we, are, when we look at the grown-up people, nobody is perfect and sinless. And Muslims accept that too, that nobody is sinless and perfect. And we need to ask, why? Doesn't it make more sense to believe that even when we are born, something has gone wrong inside of us from the very beginning. I think the Christian account of Adam's fall makes sense of so much of our life. Why is this world so messed up if God is a good creator? And the Christian answer is, this world is not in the state that God created it in the beginning. This is a world that has been corrupted and destroyed because of our rebellion. When we are honest with human history and human lives, we can, we can really believe in the Christian doctrine of original sin. I want to give you the observation of a very prominent Iranian Muslim intellectual. His name is Sorush, and some of his writings have been published by Oxford University Press. One of his books has been translated, uh, some of his writings have been translated in a book called Reason, Freedom, and Democracy in Islam. And he has a chapter talking about history, the lessons of history. So Rush says, if we look at human history, and if we are honest with what has happened in our history, we have to come to this conclusion. This is a Muslim writing this. He says, our definitions of humanity need to be soberly examined uh, by our definition, meaning the Muslim viewpoint. So he says, our definitions of humanity need to be examined in view of the amount of greed, cruelty, wickedness, and ingratitude that humans have caused. He says, all of which they have done willingly and in accordance to their nature. He goes on to say, it is true that we do not relish seeing humans in this way. It is true we don't, see, uh, we don't relish seeing humans as tyrannical, unthankful, unjust, and foolish. And that we hope that they will not be so. We, we do like to believe that humans should not like, be like this. Yet, we must recognize these defects as part of human nature. Iniquity must be recognized as a natural and permanent part of human nature and not as an erasable or incidental facet of it. In almost 1,400 years of Islamic theology, this is a very unique observation about human nature from a Muslim perspective. 
There is just too much evil going on around us to keep thinking we are basically good people. I also want to uh, give you a practical suggestion here. A great way to talk to Muslims about human sinfulness is to take Muslims to the Sermon on the Mount. Because often Muslims have also a very legalistic view of what is righteousness. If you remember my testimony, I shared how Sermon on the Mount impacted me in, in my coming to, to faith in Christ. And I know Muslims, some of them teachers of the Quran, who've come to faith in Christ as a result of just reading the Sermon on the Mount. Because Jesus cuts our heart open and says, don't think it's a big deal, you haven't committed adultery. If you look at a woman with lust in your eyes, you've committed adultery in your heart. Don't think it's a big deal, you haven't killed someone. If you hate someone, it's like you've killed them in your heart. Our situation before God is much worse than we think. There's one uh, prominent uh, Christian preacher in America that says, I summarize the Christian message in this way. We are much more sinful than we think we are, but God is much more gracious than we think he is. Another point I wanted to make is that the Quranic portrait of man is not nearly as optimistic as Muslim theology claims. What I mean by, by that is this. The Quran is filled with passages that talk about human sinfulness. And Muslim theology is not consistent with the Quran on this point. Now, let me make a parenthetical comment here. In witnessing to Muslims or talking to Muslims, I do not uh, refer to the Quran a great deal. Sometimes, uh, and we will talk more about this when we talk about Christ, Sometimes Christians use the Quran as a way to witness to Muslims. And they say, see, the Quran agrees with the gospel, and that's what the verses say. Many times I think, as Christians, we are not being honest with the text of the Quran. Many times I think, as Christians, we impose our Christian interpretation on a Quranic text. And we don't like it when Muslims twist our scriptures out of context to try to prove their point. And I don't think we should do it to the Quran. But there are two areas of exception, and uh, this is the first area. And by that I mean that I do use the Quran, not to prove that the, that the Christian message is true, but to say that the standard Islamic position is not consistent with the Quran itself. So there is a big difference in how I am approaching this subject. And so um, I believe that Muslims have elaborated on their theology in response to the Christian faith, but it's not, it doesn't take account of all that the Quran has to say on the subject. And uh, so let's look at some of, the, uh, some of the statements in Quran and Islamic tradition about what it, what it says about human nature. We read that, uh, according to many Muslim theologians, Adam's disobedience was not a big deal. It was a little mistake, little forgetfulness, and God forgave. But there is a lot more that's going, that's a lot more is going on in those stories. I am going to refer to an article written by a scholar of Islam, and using an article by a scholar named Dudley Woodbury. And the name of the article is Different Diagnosis of the Human Condition. I'll just refer to parts of this article. When we look at the account of Adam in the Quran, we see, like we saw in chapter 2, verse 30, 
that when God announced the creation of man to the angels, the angels' first response was, are you going to create somebody that will do corruption and shed blood on earth? So there is a warning already in the text that man is going to be problematic. Then the Quran talks about Satan coming to deceive man. And in chapter 17, verse 62, Satan says, I will, I will uh, subjugate most people except a few that will be saved. Another account talks about how Satan says to God, most people will not be grateful to you. Accounts that talk about Satan saying to God, most of them will pervert the truth and turn away from you. Um, the Quran, when it talks about Adam's disobedience, it doesn't talk about just a forgetfulness or a little slip on the part of Adam. No, in Surah 7, verse 23, Adam says, Lord, we have wronged ourselves. So it means Adam knew what he was doing. He was at fault. The text talk about, the Quranic text talks about Adam's shame and dishonor. And then, the most important thing, that God expels Adam and Eve from heaven to earth because of their disobedience. Muslims say, Adam's disobedience has no effect on us. Then why are we on earth and not in heaven? When God expelled Adam, he expelled Adam and all his descendants on earth. In fact, in the Quran, in Surah 2, verse 38, when God says, get down to earth, in, uh, in, uh, in Arabic, there are different words used for plural. When in, 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 in English, when we say you, you can be one person or a group. In Arabic, you, there are three different kinds of you. There is you of one person, there is you of two, and there is you of three or more. So there is a plural you that just indicates only two. But in, in Surah 2, when it says you get down, it's the plural word, not just for two, but for three or more. So there is an understanding that Adam's sin will affect more than Adam. It will affect the rest of humanity. And then we see how throughout many Quranic stories, we have stories of people doing sinful deeds. The Quran talks very prominently about people always disobeying God and, and uh, forgetting God's guidance. Surah 12, verse 103. It says, most men are not believers. Surah 12, verse 106. It says, most of them do not believe in God. Surah 13, verse 1. Most men do not believe. So if people are basically good, how do we account for the Quran talking about the constant rejection of God's message by people throughout history? The Quran uses many other adjectives to describe people. In Surah 14, it talks about human, mankind as sinful or unjust. Surah 33 talks about man being foolish. Surah 14 talks about man being ungrateful. Surah 4 talks about man being weak. Surah 11 talks about man being despairing or boastful. Surah 16 talks about man being quarrelsome, always fighting. And Surah 96 verse 6 talks about man being rebellion, rebellious. So then we read in Surah 16 verse 61 this statement. It says, if God were to punish men for their wrongdoing, he would not leave on earth a single creature. If this is the verdict of the Quran, is there not a need for a more radical solution to the problem of sin? There are also many traditions in Islam, and a very famous tradition talks about, uh, is a tradition of Prophet Muhammad. It's related, for example, in the collection of Bukhari. It says, Satan touches every child 
when the child is born except Mary and Jesus. The traditions in Islam that talk about how angels came and opened up the heart of Muhammad and washed his black heart. And then in traditional Islamic theology, people like Ibn Hazm or Al-Ghazali have also made some observations about human sinfulness. That if human soul is left to itself, it will tend toward dishonesty and evil. Al-Ghazali went on to identify four kinds of basic human inclinations. Those of savage animals, those of the beast, those inspired by the devil, and those arising from pride and ambition. Let me quote something from Ayatollah Khomeini, the, the leader of the Islamic Revolution in Iran. Khomeini said in one of his speeches, you should pay attention, and all of us should pay attention to this fact, that man's calamity is his carnal desires, and this exists in everybody, and it is rooted in the nature of man. So we, we see that if we are honest, not only with human history and with our own hearts, but even if we look more honestly at the Quran, we see that our situation is much worse than we think it is. I want to go on to another point. Muslims often challenge the Christian view of atonement, saying it doesn't make sense. This sacrifice and the shedding of the blood and stuff, this, this is the influence of pagan mystery religions. Because all prophets have come with the message of, uh, that the Quran claims, the prophets, according to Islam, from Adam to Muhammad, have all come with the same basic message. The message is to believe in God, to do righteous deeds, to believe in the day of judgment. That's the straight path. So this blood and cross and uh, atonement, they don't make sense. This is the influence of other religions on Christian theology. How do we respond to that? I take Muslims back to the Old Testament. The heart of the Old Testament is the Torah. The heart of the Torah is the book of Leviticus. And the heart of the book of Leviticus is the Day of Atonement. Basically, my point is this, that it's not the Christian gospel that's an aberration to the message of the prophets. It's the message of the Quran that's an aberration to the message of the prophets. From the very beginning of God's communication with man, God made a very clear point that he is a holy God and a sinful man cannot approach him without sacrifice. S sinful man cannot approach God without the shedding of blood. The result of sin is death, and unless that death is symbolized in the sacrifice of an animal and the shedding of the blood, a sinful man could not approach God. And of course, we read in the New Testament that all those sacrifices pointed to the reality of Christ. Sinful man cannot just say, oh, I repent and I want to approach God. Sacrifice has to be made. Blood has to be shed to remind us of the seriousness of our sinfulness and to teach us the truth of the holiness of God. And this is what we, we kind of come back to what we were talking about in previous sessions on the doctrine of the Trinity that I think a fundamental difference between Islam and Christianity has to do with the holiness of God. If you don't understand how holy God is, and we said that the Quran only referred to God's holiness twice, then 
of course you don't understand how sinful you are before this holy God. Of course you won't recognize your need for salvation before this holy God. I'd like to repeat the story of Martin Luther. Luther was a Catholic monk. Luther had studied law. Luther knew about God's law. And Luther lived in a monastery. And every day, he would go to his father's superior and confess the sins of the previous day. And his mentors thought, Luther is lazy. He doesn't want to work in the farms. So he comes and sits down and just confesses sins of the previous day. He would confess his sins of the previous day for five or six hours a day. And the mentor said, Luther, go do something real sinful and then come confess it. What have you done that you're confessing the next day for five or six hours? But Luther knew the significance of the holiness and the law of God. This is how Luther was reasoning to himself. Luther said, what is the greatest sin? And that's a question you should ask Muslims and you should ask other Christians. The typical answer might be, the greatest sin is to commit adultery or to kill someone. These are, these are the big sins in our, in our thinking. But Luther reasoned to himself that the greatest sin is the breaking of the greatest commandment. The greater the commandment, the greater the violation of breaking it. What's the greatest commandment? To love God with our 100%. To love God with our, with our whole heart and mind and soul and strength. And Luther said, you and I do not keep the law of God for one day in our life. We commit the greatest sin every day. C.S. Lewis has a beautiful comment. says, man is a rebel that needs to lay down his arms before God. We offend the holy God every day by breaking his biggest commandment. We have no hope in our own goodness. And that's why I really believe that to appreciate grace, we need to understand holiness. Many of you might be shocked by the stories in the Old Testament about God punishing people and killing them because of disobeying him. Famous story is 2 Samuel chapter 6. David is king in Israel. They're bringing the ark, the ark of God, back into Jerusalem. They are celebrating that the ark is coming back. And then, uh, in verse 6, chapter 6 of 2 Samuel, we read this verse. When they came to the threshing floor of Nacon, Uzzah rich, reached out and took hold of the ark of God because the oxen stumbled. The Lord's anger burned against Uzzah because of his irrever irreverent act. Therefore, God struck him down, and he died there beside the ark of God. That's a severe passage. It seems like he's trying to do something good. The ark, the holy ark of God is about to fall, and he's trying to reach out to save it from falling on the ground. But God zapped him dead. And then in verse 8 says, David was angry. David was shook up because of what had happened. Why? What's going on? Of course, Uzzah should have known better. Uzzah was a Levite who had received specific instructions on how to carry the ark. They knew that they shouldn't have carried the ark in a, in a cart, but in, with poles on the side of the ark, on, on people's shoulders. 
but more importantly, something else is going on too. I have a teacher who makes this observation about this story. He said, the ark of God is about to fall in the mud on the ground. Uzzah reaches out to hold the ark and keep its balance. But Uzzah thinks the hands of a sinful man is cleaner than the dirt of God's ground. Uzzah is a sinful man. The dirt hasn't opposed God. The mud is not dirty. It's the hands of a sinful man that cannot reach a holy object. When Isaiah encounters the glory of God in the temple, Isaiah is overwhelmed by the holiness of God. A great prophet in Israel and says, Woe unto me, for I'm a sinful man. Everybody in the Old and the New Testament that encounters the glory of God's presence feels undone before a holy God. From the beginning of the Old Testament to the end of the New Testament, the Bible is emphatic that we are sinful people and we cannot bear the holiness of God. That's why we are in such a desperate need of God coming down to save us. When I was a, a Muslim teenager, uh, I heard a couple of good illustrations that really affected me. Uh, one of my mission friends used this analogy. He said, suppose uh, that you are a good swimmer, or no, suppose you're standing on the shores of the ocean. I was living in Portugal at the time, and my house was right by the, by the ocean. Now, suppose we are told we need to swim across the Atlantic and reach the shores of America from Portugal. Now, somebody might be a good swimmer. They can swim 10, 20 miles. Somebody might be a lousy swimmer. They might drown right away in 10 feet of water. But the point is, nobody can swim across the Atlantic Ocean on his own. It doesn't matter how good of a swimmer you are. The distance is just too great. Or suppose you have violated a traffic law. You're driving down the road. You break the speed limit. And you are taken to court before a judge. The judge says, you have broken the law. You have to pay the penalty for breaking the law. And let's say you have done something severe and the penalty is $1,000. Now, you reach into your pockets and you empty your pockets and you don't have any money. Or you just have a few pennies or a few dollars. But you don't have $1,000 out of your pocket to pay for the penalty of your violation. Now, the Christian faith says this is our situation before a holy judge. We have violated God's laws and we cannot pay the penalty for it. Now, suppose the judge gets up comes down, takes off his robe, and stands next to me and pays the penalty on my behalf. The same judge who condemns me takes off his robe and comes, stands next to me as my friend, and he pays for the penalty. I can accept it, be grateful, and go free, or I can say, no, thank you, I'll take care of it on my own. And, of course, you have to pay the penalty on your own. So this is our situation. We cannot take care of our own problems. God is too holy to just dismiss it, to say, oh, it doesn't matter, it's okay. God is too holy to dismiss it. He must judge sin. And yet, in his love, he knows that if he were to judge us, he would have to destroy us. But he doesn't want to destroy us, so in his love, he comes down on the cross 
In his love, he wants to save. In his holiness, he must judge. So that's why the solution is the message of the cross. A Muslim man became a Christian back in 1960. And I'm just going to read a part of his testimony. His name was Dr. Dawood Rahbar. He says, allow me to ask you, what is the disposition of God towards his human creatures according to Islam? Is he a merciful God or is he only an angry God? If he is both, how is he both? And then he says, think of the creator God in two ways. He says, the creator, number one, the creator says to himself, I am going to create mankind. On earth, they will have sickness, anxiety, fear, social wrongs. They, have, they will have toils, disappointments, and then they will die. And I shall reward them or punish them uh, according to what they've done. This is my strict justice. He says, then think of the creator God in another way. He says, I'm going to create the world that I may have fellowship with man. I shall myself go and live in human life, show my heart to them, and share in their suffering. Which of the above justices is superior? The one that the God who just sits on the throne and judges his creatures, or the one who has come and experienced the pain and, and, pain, the pain and suffering of his creatures? He says, mankind has existed for many generations. He says, we must look in human history for a man who loved, who lived humbly like the poorest, who was perfectly innocent and sinless, who was tortured and humiliated in literally the worst manner, who declared his transparent love for those who killed him. If we do find such a man, he must be the creator God himself. For if there is, because this man is superior to the picture of the first God. This man shows us what God is like. His justice, his grace on the cross. Now, we cannot, again, as I said, prove with archaeology and textual evidence the Christian view of sin and salvation. But we can rely on the Spirit of God to touch the Muslim hearts that we witness to. We can challenge them to be honest with their own hearts, with the lives around them, and we can show them the biblical portrait of a holy, gracious God. Our session has ended. Our next session, we will continue our discussion on the doctrine of Christ.